What's happening, folks? Welcome back to another episode of The Christian Hansen Show. I'm Christian Hansen, and this is my podcast. Welcome to it. It is episode 41, and today's guest is comedian and writer Noah Gardenswartz. Noah is a New York-based comedian and writer, and when not on tour, Noah performs regularly at the Comedy Settler in New York City and is a writer on Amazon's Emmy and Golden Globe-winning show, The Marvelous Miss Maisel. He has his own Comedy Central special, The Half Hour, which is where I came across him. You can see it on Comedy Central, on Roku, or Paramount+. Plus. Do so. He's very funny. Very funny comedian. He's also appeared on The Late Late Show with James Gordon and twice on Conan. Additionally, he was a semi-finalist on NBC's Last Comic Standing and has released two chart-topping comedy albums, one called Blunt and the other White Men Can't Joke. But before turning to stand-up, Noah worked as a journalist, hedge fund day trader, and elementary school teacher, and even grew weed though obviously not all at once. I was able to talk to Noah the other day, and it was fun. It was a good chat. It was like 40 minutes. It uh, was a tough one. And what I mean by tough, sometimes, you know, talking to people isn't the easiest thing, right? Um, And I don't know. I, I felt like it didn't, it was good, but it did not, it did not go to the place that I wanted to go. But I had a fun time talking to him. Very appreciative of the opportunity to have had some time to talk to him. I'm happy for him. He's married. He's just got a little one. He's moving to LA. New beginnings on the way for Noah and his family. So all the best to him and his family and his comedy is phenomenal. Be sure to check it out. Links in the podcast notes as always. Without further ado, this is me talking to comedian and writer Noah Gardenswartz. How's it going? I'm doing well, thank you. You got a lot going on. You uh, moving, huh? Yeah, moving to LA in a few days. Nervous? Quite the undertaking. Nervous leaving home? Uh, no, I mean I've I've spent a lot of time in LA, so yeah. I'm certainly familiar mm-hmm. with the city, and I'm excited to get out there. I'm not nervous so much as just like slightly overwhelmed with everything involved with a cross country move and having right. an infant while we do it. Right. Yeah, that's tough. Now, uh, fatherhood, how's that been? I mean, how's I mean, fairly fairly new to this uh, new, new to this life. What's it been like? It's been the best, honestly. I mean, I think my wife and I were uh, two of the few people who actually hit the sweet spot with a parenting age for quarantine. Cause like mm-hmm. my sister has school age children and my heart goes out to all parents who like had sentient beings who were running <laughs> around and they needed to school. But my wife and I had a newborn, you know, he was born in May of 2020. And wow. so, um, I mean, obviously having a newborn or even an infant is never easy, but we got to spend so much more time than we normally would have with right. the baby in the beginning stages of his life. So it was really uh, a pretty sweet way to spend quarantine, to be honest. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think I think that's great. Um, I, I came across you on your half hour um, with Comedy Central. Um, I binge watched every season. Um, yours was great, man. That was 2016. A lot's, a lot's changed. I mean... You you've yeah. changed as a person, I'm sure you would say, um, a lot since then. Would you would you speak to that? Absolutely. I mean, well, th- first of all, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed hilarious. the hilarious. Absolutely um, hilarious. And it, it's been kind of interesting to reflect on because my comedy in itself is um, very much personal storytelling, mm-hmm. and like you know, I don't do a lot of topical jokes or political jokes. It's pretty much all about me and my life. Right. 
And so any of my specials or albums are a reflection of exactly who I am at that time. Mm -hmm. And I just recorded my third album last week. And as you can imagine, it's mostly about like being a newlywed and a father and thinking about the difference in material from my first album to the one I just recorded is pretty mind boggling to see like how my life has changed in a five year period. Yeah, no, that, that, that's funny. You know, you still in Brooklyn right now? Yes. You've been there your whole life, right? No, no? not at all. Where did you, uh, you grow up? I was born and raised in Denver. Denver. And I was in Denver, Colorado until I was 18. And then I moved to Atlanta when oh, I was wow. 18 for college. And I stayed in Atlanta for 11 years from 18 oh, yeah. to 29. I was there. And then I moved to New York when I was 30. Mm. So I've been here for uh, almost eight years. That's right. I think you mentioned in your special, you, did it, you were, were you teaching when you were down in Atlanta? Yes. You were. For, for one of the years, yeah. One of the years. That's cool. So did that, I mean, what uh, comedy, teaching a comedy, uh, was it, what was the switch? Um, what was, uh, what made you leave teaching? Uh, I left teaching just cause I didn't love it. And it's, it's a really teaching is without question, the most difficult job I've ever done. And I would, I would say probably like right up there with nurses and, and other true heroes. It's, uh, it's the hardest job there is. Um, and the truth is, unless you're really committed to being a lifelong teacher and that's what you want to do, it's not fair to the kids to have a teacher who doesn't really want to be there. Sure. Uh, and so I, I tried it out and I, you know, I was passionate about it. I took it seriously and I tried to do the best I could for my kids. But after realizing it's not what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. uh, it was time to pivot. And I actually I had done stand up prior to when I started teaching, but I kind of stopped for two years. I stopped mm-hmm. doing comedy for two years and tried a few things out. And it was actually while I was teaching that I realized how much I missed stand up and went back to it. But there's actually a lot of stand up comedians who have a teaching background. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of similarities in terms of just like, even though it's it's kids instead of adults who are drinking, it's like you're still standing in front <laughs> of an audience all day speaking and trying to command their attention. Right. It's difficult. So growing up, were you uh, so growing up just your context for grew up in Denver when um, grow, growing up, did you have any other brothers and sisters? Yeah, I have two older sisters. That's great. Were you guys close, or was it? Were they like kind of uh, detached from 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 you? Neither of the two. I mean, I yeah, I had like a a close, loving family. I certainly wasn't. I wouldn't say I was detached at all. Um, I wouldn't say we were super close growing up, just because I was the youngest and the only boy. So I was actually much closer to like my own friends. I always wanted brothers, mm-hmm. and so you know, like I was a sports kid and just wanted to run around with other guys. Um, but we always had a great relationship. And now as we've gotten older in adulthood, I'm very close with both of my sisters. Mm-hmm. That's, that's good, man. So uh, I, I know um, Judaism, right? Um, I, I have to ask you about this. There's some, are you, are you, is this something that, um, are you fully committed to, to it? Or are you, are you practicing? Are you, are you, um, are you into it as practicing? Like I know Mark Marin, he's, he is Jewish, but he doesn't, he doesn't get into it. Are you, have you, have you been into it your whole life or is this something, or, or is it something that, you know, maybe you picked up later on as far as, um, practicing it? Um, no, um, no, I mean, I, I am a practicing Jew. Um, there's, there's a lot of different ways to be Jewish, which is, you know, separate from there's like religious Judaism and cultural Mm -hmm. Judaism or even ethnic Judaism. And, 
And I feel a connection to all three. You know, I'm definitely culturally and ethnically Jewish, but I also practice the actual religion. Mm. And that's that's um, gone in stages. Um, you know, I grew up in a pretty religious household, so I grew up practicing Judaism. And then um, when I went away to college in my early adulthood, when I was making my own choices, I wouldn't say I was actively practicing at all. I was mm. just kind of taking a step back and figuring out what I wanted to do as it was my choice for the first time. And then again, as I got a little bit older, got married, started thinking about having my own family, mm. um, I certainly got more back into the practice. And I'm not I'm not an Orthodox Jew. I'm not, you know, it's like I I don't eat pork or shellfish. Um, I, I keep pretty kosher, but like I still work and drive and spend money on the Sabbath and stuff like that. But yeah, like I my my wife and I try to have Shabbat dinner on Friday nights with our son. And yeah, I, I definitely practice the religion. Mm. How how would you say you've, um, you've changed a, as a person by way of religion over, let's just say since the half hours film, as you, have you found, cause I know my brother, he dealt with, with things where for the very long time, he never, well, we attached to uh, religion, right? We were Catholic, but there was never any, practicing with it at, at what point did you feel like you became more whole a, as a person by way of um religion do you think there was a moment um whether it be no, with fatherhood that maybe that came full circle and you felt you felt like you were you were doing it that makes sense um i i actually don't think i don't think religion I, I don't think there was ever a point in my life where I felt like I wasn't a whole person or that there was like this void that religion had to fill. I've always felt like a whole person trying to do my best, um, you know, religious or not. I just try to be a good person. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like being the best version of myself, whether religion is a huge aspect of my life at that time or not, I still just try to be like ethically and morally a good guy. Even when I wasn't actively practicing Judaism, I still considered myself to be like a kind, sensitive, generous, mm -hmm. thoughtful person. Um, where Judaism played that role in my life, like, again, I was I was raised with Judaism, so I'm mm -hmm. sure a lot of my moral compass or like the ethical way I try to behave and the kindness, mm -hmm. um, I think Judaism instilled a lot of that, but I also think that um, you can certainly be that kind of person without Judaism or religion in your life. So, um, you know, I, I don't think Judaism contributed to making me a whole person. And, and even right now in fatherhood, I don't know that I'm a whole, I'm, I'm always trying to evolve and sure. be better and grow. So there's still room for that. But, um, you know, I'm, I try to be the best version of myself, regardless of where religion falls into my life. Right. It's, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to do that though. Now, just, just with anything, cause I feel like everyone's always judged. They're always, they're always, um, grade it on every every move we make in society, which makes it harder for people to make that move and, and kind of become uh, a better person or become a different person because everything you do is going to be critiqued. It, it makes it makes things a little harder, which which is kind of frustrating. But um, when, when you were growing up, what kind of got like what, what was comedy something in the household? I mean, how did you how did you get into it? Where did you begin cutting your teeth at what age? And uh was it uh, talk a little bit about the formative years of the stand-up journey that you've uh, embarked on? Uh, well, so I, I always grew up in a house that appreciated humor. Like my entire family is funny. Both of my parents were funny. My sisters have a really good sense of humor um, and laughter and joking around was always 
encouraged in my house. Like I wasn't, I wasn't raised sheltered at all. Mm. Like even though we were religious, I was allowed to watch rated R movies from a very <laughs> young age. And my parents would make inappropriate jokes. And, you know, like one of the ways I always found value in the family was making people laugh. So, um, so like I just grew up in a house full of laughter and humor, which certainly helped. Mm-hmm. And and I loved stand up growing up. Like I used to love watching Chris Rock and George Carlin, oh, great. their specials on HBO. Or like, you know, when Chappelle put out Killing Him Softly, um, there were those were like some of the first stand up mm-hmm. that I really, really gravitated towards. And I loved the art form and I loved watching it. Uh, Deaf Comedy Jam was oh, something yeah. my whole family would actually watch together. As we really? Wow, that's crazy. Yeah. And so we love that. But even as a young fan, like appreciating the art of stand up, I never dreamed that I would be a stand up or even aspired to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always enjoyed writing. Creative writing has always been a really important expression to me. Mm-hmm. And I've tried it over a variety of ways from childhood up until adulthood. And um, basketball was always my thing. Like I would, all I cared about was basketball, yeah. middle school, high school. And then I played a little bit of college ball. Really? Where at? Um, at Emory University, oh, okay. it's division three. So it's, you know, I was good enough to play college, but not good enough to be like at a big school. <laughs> um, but basketball took over my entire life. And then I got injured after my freshman season yeah. um, and I stopped playing for the school. And that's when I kind of had to redirect my life and my purpose um, and, and that's kind of when I went back into creative writing and I tried out a variety of different forms in my senior year at college. Um, I just decided, like, I think I have some pretty funny thoughts. Let me try writing out some jokes. I mm-hmm. took them to an open mic and mm-hmm. uh, and it went well enough and I enjoyed it enough to want to stick with it. So my comedy journey, as far as actually doing it, began the summer before my senior year in college at open mics in Atlanta. Oh, wow. It's the crazy. first place I ever went up was a taco restaurant. Really? I, there's yeah. a lot of those stories. Like, I, I talked to uh, Sean Donnelly. He did that. He did a taco. That was one of his first open mics was in New York. He did it at a taco shop. He did one at a bait, bait shop out in uh, Idaho. They closed the store, the, the store of this fish store, and he did it in a bait shop. I mean, there's all these weird these weird yeah, stories comedians, of doing gigs. What's the strangest are one? are kind of like roaches. It's yeah, like a little bit. It's kind of weird. Anywhere. Yeah, I mean, you'll do it like South Carolina. I think, uh, people doing it in like a like you know, abandoned houses. Yeah. Uh, it's it's crazy. I mean, what what were some of those stories aside from? I mean, taco shop that's pretty mild. But what was the most extreme um, circumstance as far as uh, those those early gigs goes? Um, weird place that you've been in. Uh, I mean, again, you name it, like any kind of bar, restaurant, mm. house, apartment, basement, synagogue, you know, I've, synagogue? I've done Wow, it. really? Oh, yeah, I've done a bunch of synagogue gigs. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I've done comedy so many weird places, but I would say the absolute weirdest place I ever did comedy. And it was for a web series that was specifically trying to get you to do stand up in like places that would not be comfortable to do stand up. Mm-hmm. But I did it in the bathroom at Grand Central Station in New York City. What the hell? And that was a pretty it was fun but it's also different. horrifying and nerve-wracking. Wow. That that's uh that's 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 strange. It's very strange. <laughs> um I feel like now since now now that you're a father, right? Um and being someone who kind of, you know, just lived in New York um, lived in Brooklyn. Um, over the uh, over the past year, right, we saw this country just go crazy with 
with um well it's always been an issue right with racial uh division in, in our in our country and he's being a teacher who taught down in, in georgia and stuff um you, you grew up and you were surrounded by uh, very multicultural and uh ethnic variety of neighborhoods and people for for you now being as a father um are you ever or do you have these thoughts um, of uh being fearful of raising someone in the society that we're in now with it being as toxic as it is, is does that does that ever uh, bring you fear knowing no, that you're going to have I to mean, explain this to them and how to do it? No, I mean, the, the truth is, I don't think there's ever going to be a perfect world to raise your child in. Mm-hmm. I think because of social media and the 24 hour news cycle, um, everyone is certainly more aware of everything going on at all times, but mm-hmm. I don't think there's ever been a moment where like raising kids was easy. When I look around and see what's going on in the world, am I thrilled about the state of the world that I'm raising a child in? No, but I do think um, so much of what can help improve the world is thoughtful parenting and being being honest and exposing mm-hmm. your kids to um, what's happening and having real conversations and mm-hmm. also exposing your kids to different people, different communities, different experiences. And so um, I, I look forward to the challenge of, of being a good parent in this world and, and hopefully raising a good kid who will make a difference and be accepting and be loving in the face mm-hmm. of all that seems to be going wrong. Yeah. Growing up, what, what were your parents into? What'd they do as far as work goes? Uh, my father is an accountant. Okay. And my mother, she taught special ed oh, at a... Oh, yeah, she taught special ed elementary school for a while, and then uh, for a few years she stopped to raise kids and and was just a very active mother and and wife. And then she went back and started working for the community and actually worked for Denver's uh, the Allied Jewish Federation in oh, Denver. Wow. And worked for the Jewish community in Denver. That's great. And your sisters? I mean, you have it. Sounds like you had a great family, man. What do your sisters do? I do. It's awesome. Uh, my sister, my oldest sister. Uh, was a teacher for 15 years. She taught Talmud at a Jewish day school and she just left last year. She just transitioned and she works for a Jewish organization that's responsible for like educating Jewish educators. Oh wow! Um, and my other sister was a chef and she retired to uh, raise her two kids. Wow, man. That's, uh, that's awesome. That's really cool. That damn. That's uh, that's pretty impressive. So you've come you have to, you've come from a, a family of I'd say educators. So that kind of makes sense as to um, you know what what ushered along the the choice uh, as far as teaching goes um, initially. What were the other options that that were that were on your mind at that time when deciding about school goes? Were there any other career paths that you thought about, or was was the teaching at that time the 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 thing that you only wanted to do? No, I mean, I didn't even, I didn't want to be a teacher when I went to school, you know, again, like when I went to college, I was going to play basketball. Right. Yes. That's Mm -hmm. all I cared about. So I really didn't even think that was going to be a thing. Like you thought like that. No, I didn't think I was going to go to the NBA, but I wasn't worried about picking my career path. I was just kind of like, I'm going to college. I'm going to play basketball. This is what I work hard for. Then we'll see what happens. Yeah. Um, But once I graduated, one of the other ways, as I told you, like once I stopped playing basketball, writing kind of took my focus. So one Mm -hmm. of the things that I did is I started writing for the school paper and then I got internships at the local newspaper and local news station in Atlanta. Um, and so my very first job out of college was actually being the editorial coordinator for the arts paper. So for a while I was, I was a journalist 
And then I, uh, I actually got into finance for a little bit and I day traded for a hedge fund for a year as well. So I, I tried my hand at a variety of things between journalism and teaching and finance before ultimately getting into comedy. I, you know, I moved around a bit and tried things out. Yeah, no, that's that's great. When uh, when you started, who were the people that came up with you in, in that comedy circle? Who were some of those uh, people that you, you came out with at that time? So I'm actually very proud of the Atlanta comedy scene that I that I came up with. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people doing really great things in comedy. Uh, my best friend in comedy who I came up with um, that I'm still like constantly working with and still incredibly close with is Clayton English, mm. who is an incredible comedian. He won Last Comic Standing a few years ago, and he's just uh, a fantastic comic. And in my first little comedy crew it was me, Clayton English and Carlos Miller, uh, Carlos K-A-R-L-O-U-S, who is now the one third of but kind of the steering force of 85 south show which is one of the most popular podcasts and touring comedy shows so those are two of the comedians that i came up with that uh that i really really am proud to have come up with um and then other people from atlanta that that were kind of my generation of comedians was rob hayes andy sanford caleb Sinan, shalewa sharp dulce sloan there's there's a lot of people that have come out of Atlanta and been really successful and we all came up together kind of you know steel sharp and steel so when you're lucky enough to be in a smaller city developing comedy with other really good comedians it, it makes everyone better oh, that's great when did you uh when did you start doing uh clubs like at, at what point did you start doing doing the thing across countries or playing 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 in clubs and doing and doing tours at what point did that start well so before before I moved to New York, um, my last couple of years in Atlanta, I was featuring all over the country. Yeah, wow. so I, I wasn't the headliner and I wasn't making enough money to like support myself just doing comedy. Mm-hmm. But um, but I was driving cross country for hours at a time, just putting thousands, thousands of miles in my car and sleeping on couches or in really, really uh, bad motels just to get up and, you know, break even on the weekend doing 30 minutes before headliners. Mm-hmm. Um so that was kind of when that journey started. And then after I put out my half hour in 2016, that's when I got an agent for the first time. And once I had an agent, you know, I had someone who was able to book me as a headliner. So uh, 2016, the fall of 2016 is when I started traveling as a headliner across country and working the clubs. Oh, wow. Did you ever, you ever come to Chicago? Yeah, I, I do Zanies when really? I go there. That's great. When's the last time you did Zanies? Last January, it was one of the last shows I did before the shutdown. Actually, yeah. before the pandemic hit, I did a, I did a four night swing through the Midwest of one nighters. I did uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, Columbus, and Cincinnati. Wow, that's awesome, and, man! Yeah, that's cool. Fun. So, when you're going to each city, obviously, I'll, I'll, I've seen uh, your stand up. It's very, it's, it's personal, right? It's all, it's all life experiences but does the do you do you change your act do you do you switch things up to based on the audience and who's in the crowd in each city you go to some cities i talked to sean donnelly and he said that some cities he goes to there's a little some things he has to do differently like he went to iowa and he said it was the strangest place he did a show because once he started talking the crowd stopped laughing he didn't understand it and he he felt like there's like he was doing something wrong and he he asked people they said that oh no as soon as you start talking we just we just pick up and um take that as a cue 
that we need to stop because you're doing your work. It's a sign of respect. And he thought that was strange. He goes, Iowa's the strangest city I do shows in. For you, what were some of the cities that you kind of had to switch things up at as far as room goes? Or um, were some cities harder to, to you know, kind of get work in? Or, I mean, is your comedy change each city you go to? No, I mean, the truth is I don't I don't really change my act based on the city. I mean, if I'm headlining and I'm going to do 45 minutes to an hour of comedy, then I have the 45 minutes to an hour that I'm working on. And that's what I'm going to go do. Mm. Um, you know, some nights it goes better than others, which might have to do with the city. But I but I've actually learned not to judge crowds too much based on when you go in there if you see based on the racial makeup or the age makeup like sometimes you see old people and you're like oh no this is going to be like a conservative crowd and then those old people are the ones who want the dirtiest jokes you right. know so it's like i i've just learned to go out and do your thing because you never really know who's going to respond to what the only times i really switch it up is um there are times that i do shows specifically for jewish communities and mm -hmm. in that case i have a separate hour which is all jewish jokes but uh, if I'm just doing like a regular standard show, I pretty much keep my act the same. The only the only thing I'm cognizant of is I have maybe five minutes worth of jokes that are about New York or about L.A. that that work on the coast. Like if you're in a big city that's mm -hmm. familiar with New York or L.A. lifestyle, then those jokes will typically be appreciated. But, yeah, if you're in Iowa or Nebraska um, or kind of like smaller towns mm -hmm. in the middle of the country, they don't really give a shit. about that. Like they don't want to hear your jokes about New York. Um, but but other than that, I, I keep my act pretty much the same. Yeah, no, that's great. So since you've done, you've done obviously the half hour, you've got um, an album, you've done stuff like this. Once those things happen, do you feel that that content has to be thrown out because it's out there, people have seen it? Do you, do, would you speak on that saying that that is... Um, that is, in fact, true to some extent that once you have a special or once you have an album out there, a lot of that content has to be thrown out because it's out there. Do you do you do you feel that that is something of truth? Yeah, I mean, my personal stance, I, I always would prefer people paying money to come see me live to hear jokes they've never heard before. Mm -hmm. um, so. So, yeah, like as much as I possibly can, I don't do stuff. You know, the whole point of recording an album is to retire those jokes and move on to the next mm -hmm. hour. So, like, um, again, I just recorded an hour. Yeah. And so when that album comes out, there will be times when I'm on the road that I don't have a whole new hour built yet. So, like, let's say my album comes out this July mm -hmm. and I have a weekend headlining somewhere in August the people that come see me in August are probably going to have to hear 20 to 30 minutes of jokes from old albums because I don't have a new hour to give them. Mm -hmm. But, um, but like anyone who's seen me in the last year or two certainly didn't hear jokes from my first two albums. They heard the jokes that I was working on that became my last album. So I'm always looking to write new material mm -hmm. and doing as much new material as I can for audiences, but um, I can't do a completely new hour until I have a completely right. new hour. I think the pandemic's helped though, right? I mean, it's given everyone a lot of content to kind of go off of now. Uh, not really. You don't I mean, think so? what, no, because well, so first of all, a lot of comedians need audiences sure, yeah. to to bounce new material off of and see if it works. And for a year we couldn't perform for anyone. So that slowed down the progress of like just testing out material. And then beyond that, uh, you know, every comedian has their own opinion, but I didn't write any material about the pandemic because I was mm. like, first of all every comedian is going to be talking about the pandemic. Yeah. And second of all, by the time the pandemic is finally over, I'm willing to bet that that's the last thing people want to hear about and talk about. Like, 
Yeah. I'm sick of hearing jokes about Zoom and jokes about quarantine, you know, and it's only been a few weeks since it's kind of been lifted and not even all the way. So I can imagine that a few months from now, after we just live this hellish year, no one wants to like go back into a comedy club and then relive that experience. Right. So when was the, when was the last show you did that? Because you're out, you're out in New York. Was it how, when was the last show you did right before everything hit the fan? Uh, I couldn't tell you the very last show. I, if I remember correctly, I had a few weekends in February, and wow. then the shutdown happened in March. Yeah, you were in. So I would say I, you know, I probably did like a headlining weekend somewhere three weeks or so before yeah. everything shut down. That's crazy, man! Absolutely crazy. Have you done? Uh, have you done any corporate gigs? Yes, but not a lot. I mean, the those weird or no? Yeah, they're not that fun. <laughs> what's your What's your story on those? What's because uh, I get the same thing. Everyone, every uh, Nate Bargatze talked about one of his in his new special, which was phenomenal. Um, but uh, yeah, what What's your uh, What's your corporate gig story? You have one? No, I honestly can't even remember the last corporate gig I did. <laughs> For me, mo- most of the, they're not really corporate, but most of the like gigs that would qualify as corporate, like I said, are for the Jewish communities. Like um, organizations mm-hmm. will hire me to come in and do something for their membership. But um, but I don't typically get offered, nor do I typically accept corporate gigs because, first of all, most of them want you to be squeaky clean. And I'm not like a dirty, offensive comedian, but I'm not clean you know so like doing an hour of clean comedy is not for me um and then beyond that a lot of times corporate money comes with great money and they want really big names like nate bargatze yeah i got you there writing for uh the marvelous miss mazel how'd that opportunity come up i mean how how'd that get presented to you i came up because they they were looking for some stand-up comedians to be in the room to help Mm -hmm. write some of the comedy scenes and uh this was about a half a year after I put out my Comedy Central special. And so my agents sent the show creators my special to watch Mm -hmm. and they responded to my comedy enough to want to meet with me. And then I went in for an interview and we just talked for a few hours and really hit it off. And I was really a big fan of the script that they sent me to read before the interview. And uh, I think they were a fan of some of the ideas that I brought in and it just kind of naturally felt like a good fit. That's awesome, man. And then I, uh, I I know you've done some late night. You've done Conan. I think you've done uh, James Gordon too. Um, I talked to Michael Palasek about those experiences, and he said that it, it was uh, those moments are kind of very wholesome and kind of um, grounding in the sense that you get there, you always think big lights, big stage, and then you realize it's no bigger than the club that you started out comedy in. What was that experience like for you? Was it uh, was it a humbling experience? To, to just realize that this is no no different than that small club that I started out in? Uh, not necessarily humbling in that respect. It was it was surreal for me because, like, the first, the first late night set that I did was Conan, and Conan was always my guy. Like, growing up, Conan was the late night show I used to watch, mm-hmm. uh, and I was such a huge fan of his. And then when I started doing comedy, Conan was the late night set I wanted to get, and it was such a long process for me. Like, sometimes comedians get seen by a show's booker mm-hmm. and they're like, Oh, I, I like that set. And a week later they're doing it for me. I was going back and forth with the booker at Conan working on a set for almost two years. So oh, it was wow. like, so it was like so long in the making before I finally got the go ahead to come and do Conan. And mm-hmm. then the fact that I wanted to do Conan so badly for me, 
it was a surreal experience of just kind of like, wow, finally I'm doing it. I can't believe it. And the truth is I was so nervous slash anxious, excited about it that I really couldn't enjoy it in the moment. Mm. You know, like um, it, it was almost one of those out of body experiences that I went and did my set. And it wasn't until later that I could reflect on it and be really excited about it. Um, but then the second time I did Conan, at that point, I was familiar with it and um, it was much more relaxed and I just had a blast and and it just felt so good to be invited back and to kind of be really happy with the set I had. And then Corden was kind of the same thing where at that point, even though they're different shows, when you do late night, it's all kind of the same feeling. Right. Um, and so I was just like, I'm very grateful to both the bookers at Conan and Corden for giving me those opportunities and Conan and James Corden were both incredibly kind to me backstage or after the set and were really really nice guys to be around so it's just a cool experience in general that's awesome man i uh for 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 late night over the more so over the past five or six years i feel like it's changed right from what we we grew up knowing um and loving everything has become everything is politics on late night for you has that changed changed the way you, you view late night television do you think it's gotten to the point to where it's 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 not even the same anymore. Do you do you fear that um, it's late night television as we once knew it has disintegrated into this politically um, infused hour and a half uh, television show? Well, to be perfectly honest, I don't watch late night anymore. You don't, so, you don't watch it anymore. Is it because of no. that? No, no, no. I didn't stop watching because it got political. I mm-hmm. I really. I, I stopped watching late night once I left my parents' house at age 18. You know, like I used to watch it because I was in their house and it would be on at 1030 and my parents watched late yeah. night. And the truth is that's who late night is for. It's for, you know, older people typically at home ready to go to sleep by 1030. Like comedians, mm-hmm. 1030, we're out. Like I'm not home You're to starting watch it. That that's when I'm out at the club. Yeah. You know, I'm doing my own show. Right. Um, but, but like... I think TV in general has changed forever. Like the landscape of what TV is, mm. is forever altered. And so nothing is what it was when we grew up. Right. No, absolutely. I get that. Growing up, I always like to ask this question. Was there a moment, maybe not a singular moment, maybe there was a singular moment. Uh, was there a moment or moments that you could say have really molded you and defined you into the person in which you are today? <laughs> no, I mean, there's no one singular moment. Right. Again, I think, I think because... I view life as a constant stream of experiences and exposures and relationships that lead to the evolution of who you ultimately become. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, of course there are like defining moments. Like my mother passed away when I was 24. That's oh, something man. that, that certainly defined um, my early adulthood mm-hmm. and changed the trajectory of my life. But I wouldn't say that, that that one moment was any more or less important than something small that may have happened right. to me in grade school. Like, you know, it's all, everything is, um, nothing happens in a vacuum. So like life is an accumulation of experiences that ultimately affect you going forward. Sure. Did, uh, so by the way, I'm sorry about that, but when, oh, it's okay. when, when things like that happen, I feel like everyone, then you, you take a step back and then you start to realize that life, you know, how precious life is. Was that, was that, kind of a thing for you where you're like wow this is short there's really seven was it 80 80 85 mid 80s is like it's all you have it's like did that really kind of um put in perspective to you just how valuable life is 
and to make the most out of it um, with what we have. I sure. feel like that would put you, that obviously shook you, but would was that like a moment of clarity for you? Or like, wow, I mean, what am I doing? Should I be doing more? Am I not doing enough? Uh, no, I mean, for me, it was, it wasn't about like judging the sense of accomplishment or purpose I had at that point. I mean, it was definitely, it it definitely put things in perspective in terms of like, you're not promised tomorrow. So like right. be appreciative of what you have or who you have. It was, it was much more a wake up call to like, pay closer attention to the relationships yeah. in my life. than it was like finding things to drive accomplishments in my life. Right. That's good. So you've, uh, you're getting ready to move. That's exciting. You, you got a kid. I mean, did you ever did you ever think uh, that the, the past year up until now would be as great as uh, as great as it is uh, despite the pandemic? I mean, you got to be happy right now. Yeah, thank, thankfully, I uh, I'm very fortunate. I certainly feel like I live a blessed life and yeah. uh, appreciative of everything I have. And, and yeah, I mean, the fact the last year was so difficult in so many ways for so many people, there were so many like millions of people who were either completely isolated alone or Mm -hmm. out of work or sometimes both. There were a lot of people who had no work and no one to be around. And I was incredibly fortunate to have work and have a family to keep me going. So I I certainly recognize how lucky I was and I'm appreciative of that. Yeah. You're nervous getting back out there doing, doing live shows again, or you, uh, you're ready to get back out. No, no. I mean, I'm, first of all, I'm double vaccinated. Me so, too. so, um, I'm not, I'm not too worried about like catching coronavirus mm-hmm. from anyone beyond that. I'm not nervous about taking the stage again. Cause it feels good. Like I've been right. doing stand up long enough where it is, it is like riding a bike where the first few shows, of course, there was some rust to knock sure. off, but you very quickly feel at home again on stage. Right. Do you, you got any shows coming up? Uh, I'm at the comedy cellar tonight. Really? Wow. Uh, but but as, as far as as far as road shows go, the first weekend of June, I'll be in Cleveland at Hilarities, June fourth through the sixth, oh, wow. and then uh, I think I'm I'm in Tampa at Side Splitters in late July, and I know I'm in Minnesota in uh, Minneapolis at the Mall of America House of Comedy oh, wow. in October. So I'm starting to get some road dates together. That's exciting, man. Well, that's good. I uh, appreciate you taking a little bit of your time to to talk to me today. I really do know. Yeah, thank you for having me. Nice to meet you. Likewise, man. Take care of yourself. Thanks, you too. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and comedian and writer Noah Gardenswords. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. We'll see you next time here on The Christian Hansen Show. Till then, stay safe and be well.